If I were to ask this congregation the question, have you ever shared the gospel with Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ with a, an unbeliever at work, at school, wherever, at any point in your life, I wonder how many could raise their hands and say, I have. Not only that, I'm committed to being used in some way to get out the message of the gospel to those around me. Let me back out of even further. I wonder how many people acknowledge to their world on Monday morning that they were in church on Sunday. When you're asked, well, what'd you do over the weekend? You say, well, I worked in the yard and did a little thing here and there and, and not even own up to that. Or furthermore, hey, why don't you come with me to church? It's interesting, according to one survey I read recently by Tom and Sam Rayner, 82% of the people they surveyed who were unchurched said that they would more than likely attend a service if they were personally invited by a friend. The Rayner survey then flipped the question around and discovered that typically less than one in four churchgoers ever invite anybody to come with them to church. 82% might come, yet one in four are only the ones asking. Harnack, the, the great German church historian, wrote that the early mission of Christianity was accomplished by means of what he called informal missionaries. That phrase, informal missionaries, was actually coined by Justin in the second century, a church leader who was martyred for his faith. He said that the spread of the gospel came because the believers all believed that they were informal missionaries. So how far have we come from that? Another pollster wrote in his book, The Results of a Survey, where people who claimed to be born again, that is, they actually accepted and adopted that terminology, that they were born again, He asked the question, or the survey asked the question, do you believe you have a responsibility to explain your religious beliefs? And 60% of those people said they did not feel it was their responsibility to be a witness. Imagine that. I fear that for the most part the church today is, is growing by transference from one church to the next rather than by conversion people who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ because more and more Christians are refusing to believe that it is their responsibility to share their faith with others. Rather humorous comic I read about some time ago that kind of put this in excellent words. It's uh, funny but convicting at the same time. He said he he was asked about his religion and he said, well, I don't talk about that to people. Oh, you don't talk about it? No, I don't talk about my religion to people. He was then asked, well, what are you? And he said, well... I'm a Jehovah's bystander. The man said, I've never heard of such a thing. Well, he responded, well, maybe not. I'm just more comfortable being a bystander than a witness. Well, I'm not endorsing the Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way, with that story. But I am deeply disturbed about the growing number of Christians who could easily be called Jehovah's bystanders. That's not a spiritual cult. But I do believe it is a spiritual condition. Perhaps of the church today. We can sing with great enthusiasm. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. But know that technically what that means in our heart is we'll sing about him in here. We will not speak about him out there. I will be a witness for my Lord, ladies and gentlemen. It's more than a lyric. It is a lifestyle. Now, if you've been studying 
for very long with me through the last book of the Bible and the revelation of the future, you can't help but be struck by the faithful witnessing of so many people. And I want you to know this is convicting to me. I'm just preaching to myself like I'm preaching to you. In fact, it's convicted me throughout my study, and I'm just so glad to be able to finally deliver it and be done with it, right? This is convicting to me too. But we've been, we've been marked by the testimony of faithful people, whether it's the 144,000 Jewish evangelists who are fearlessly, tirelessly delivering the gospel to the world, or maybe those who've come to faith in Christ after the rapture who've heard the gospel testimony primarily of these evangelists who are coming to faith in Christ and the millions who will be martyred because they will not be silent about their relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, two of the most dramatic witnesses ever to appear, I think, on the planet's surface, are about to be introduced. Before they're introduced, we have to go first to where John is asked to actually take part in the unfolding drama of Revelation. So let's start with verse 1 where we left off at chapter 11. And notice what John is asked to do, and eventually we'll get to these two special witnesses. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, I believe that someone is God, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. John here was given a calamus. It's the Greek word for a tall, hollow cane that could grow as high as 12 feet. It could be whittled down to make quills. It could be used as walking canes. And it could also be used in its entire length as a surveyor's ruler or measuring rod. God is asking John to do just that, to take the surveyor's reed and go and measure the temple. The Greek word for temple is naos. That'll be significant later on. This is the inner part of the temple. This is the place where where we refer to as the holy place, which includes the smaller compartment of the holy of holies. The word naos does not refer to the entire temple complex. Now what we tend to miss as we read that one little verse is the proverbial elephant in the room. The obvious thing that we just gloss right over. John has just been asked to measure the temple. There is no temple standing in Jerusalem when John writes the book of Revelation. It has been destroyed. In fact, it was destroyed 25 years earlier. The history, in fact, of the temple is a rather sad tale of the unfaithfulness of God's people and the ongoing commitment of God to to his people. And the temple eventually will be rebuilt, as I'll tell you in a moment. But the first temple, as you may remember, was built in all of its magnificent glory by by Solomon. It, It was destroyed. The second temple was reconstructed by Zerubbabel after the exile, but that was destroyed. The third temple that was built was built by Herod as a gift to the Jews that he wanted to win favor with. That was the temple that Christ was at as a 12-year-old boy, questioning the Jewish leaders. This is the temple of the apostles as they stood on the porch on the day of Pentecost and delivered the gospel. This is the temple we most often think of. But Jesus Christ predicted in Matthew 24, verse 2, that that temple would be destroyed, Herod's temple, not one stone left upon another. That prediction came true in A.D. 70, 
during the lifetime of John, as Titus, the Roman general, came and besieged Jerusalem and overran rebellious Jerusalem, burning the temple to the ground. Tradition informs us that the flames were so intense that the gold and silver adorning the temple melted and ran between the cracks. The only thing left standing in Jerusalem dating back as a portion of the western wall, most often referred to as uh, the Wailing Wall, where Orthodox Jews come to this day, in fact, day after day after day, especially on the Sabbath, and they stand before that wall and they pray this, and I quote, May it be thy will that the temple be speedily rebuilt in our time. That temple has not been rebuilt. John's being told to go measure a temple that's been rebuilt. We know from Revelation, as we'll look later, that there is a millennial temple in all of its glory, not just the naos, but the temple courtyard is built. And so what we have then is in between Herod's and the millennial uh, kingdom's temple, a fourth temple. John sees a temple that was reconstructed in Jerusalem, perhaps just prior to and certainly now lasting through the tribulation period. In fact, we know that the Antichrist is the one who initiates the rebuilding of this naos, this holy place and holy of holies. It's his desire to be viewed as God. He sets the Jewish nation up with his false peace, rebuilds this portion of uh, the temple. But then, as we know, in a fit of rage and jealousy and blasphemy, he will desecrate that temple, much like Antiochus Epiphanes did centuries early, by sacrificing a pig on that altar, thus making that temple null and void, can never be used again. In fact, Paul clearly speaks of the Antichrist's uh, blasphemy and his, the idolatry built around him in, to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2. And I read, the man of lawlessness will be revealed, the son of destruction, that is the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, and he takes his seat in the naos, the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Here you find John being commanded to measure the tribulation temple, which will have a very short lifespan. He is literally to measure the holy place, the naos, which included the holy of holies. Now, evidently, uh, this wasn't an effort to determine its physical dimensions uh, because we're not even given them. This is an act that signified ownership. God is measuring out this spot and the worshiping ones, predominantly Jews, we would believe within its naos, within this property. If you have any doubt, you do this yourself, if you have any doubt about your property line, you're concerned that your neighbor is cutting more grass than he should, (laughs) right? You call the surveyor and he comes out and he measures your property and drives down the stakes that have been lost and you're able to tell your neighbor you're taking care of way too much lawn. Let me do that. That's actually my property. Okay, what's happening here is the same thing. This is ownership. God is saying, this really is my property designated for my people for a special purpose yet to be seen. Now, I want you to notice something very interesting. Obviously, this is stunning news to John. There's a temple. He sees it. 
He had seen the other one destroyed. Now he's told to go and measure this one. God's promises are certainly going to come true with this tribulation and his own revelation of that tribulation period. But there is obviously then going to be a Jewish people that still care. There's the implication of a Jewish state. A a literal temple will be marked out here with a literal measuring reed in a literal city of Jerusalem, as we'll see in a little bit. But now I want you to notice, even more significantly, an omission by John. God tells John not to measure something else. Look at verse 2. Leave out the court, which is outside the temple. Do not measure that. For it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city, that is Jerusalem, for 42 months, or literally three and a half years. Now this court outside the temple represents the court of the Gentiles, the court to which Gentiles have access. And the command of God to John is not to measure this outer court. In fact, it is designated in the Greek language as something outside of God's favor. You could understand it literally to have been abandoned by God, even though it's still on the temple mount. This omission has become even more fascinating in light of the findings of archaeologists in our lifetime. In fact, just in the last few decades. Let me explain. Have you ever wondered how the tribulation temple could be rebuilt on the temple mount? If you were to visit the temple mount, what you would find is anything but a Jewish temple, right? You would find Islam's, one of Islam's most famous and most sacred sites to their religion, a Muslim mosque and a shrine called the Dome of the Rock. It's in all of the postcards and all of the pictures with its shiny dome. Muslims believe this is the cornerstone of creation. They believe under that dome is the place where Abraham offered or nearly offered up his son, although they believe it was Ishmael and not Isaac. And they also believe that from that very spot, their prophet Muhammad ascended to heaven without dying. And so that is to them a most sacred spot. In fact, since, since 691 A.D., this dome of the rock, with now its golden brilliance sort of just shining in the Middle Eastern sun, has stood on the Temple Mount, which is the sacred place for the Jews. This 35-acre plot of ground. Now John sees a reconstructed temple for Jewish worship on the Temple Mount. And furthermore, its claim to legitimacy, as all of the previous temples, its claim to legitimacy is that the Holy of Holies is on the very spot of Solomon's Holy of Holies in that original temple. Well, how do you get Jews to rebuild the sanctuary on the Temple Mount without World War III taking place? I mean, for 2,000 years, Jews and Muslims and Christians have been slaughtered in their attempts to control that little plot of land. And even today, that's the most famous 35 acres on the planet, and world attention is still focused on it, isn't it? You, you don't mess with that land. And that's a political hot potato if there ever was one. How will the Antichrist ever bring about peace and allow the Jews to rebuild this temporary sanctuary? Well, with the help of archaeologists and surveyors, there is good reason to believe that the Muslim's dome of the rock is not on the actual spot of the naos, 
the sanctuary, which housed the Holy of Holies. That spot, according to one engineer and many others, this one particular one who's really passionately pursued this by the name of Asher Kaufman and others with him, says that that actual spot is, is literally 100 yards north of the dome, still on the Temple Mount, but not where the Dome of the Rock sits. There are numerous scholarly findings. In fact, I spent time this week researching the drawings of Kaufman and his topographical maps to see what he and his teams and other teams and engineers have have accomplished as faithful Jews committed to Jerusalem. There are now numerous scholarly findings to give serious doubt to the fact that the Dome of the Rock is actually sitting on the site of the original Holy of Holies. And if this research is correct, you could easily see your way to a Middle Eastern solution, or at least a partial solution, right? The Jews could have their sanctuary rebuilt, the holy place and the holy of holies, without having to tear down the Muslims' sacred site. I mean, you see the bumper stickers, coexist, and that's what the world is rushing toward, and that will be the message of the Antichrist, and he will make it happen there on that temple mount. But, but even with that in mind, there is still a problem. If the reconstructed temple would have the ability to build out those courtyards, the courtyards surrounding the temple would encompass the Dome of the Rock. Then you're back to the same problem. How interesting it is here that John in Revelation 11 is told, you don't have to measure the area outside the naos. You don't have to measure the courtyard because verse 2 says, that has been dedicated to the Gentiles. That's already been given to the unbelievers. So the tribulation temple, which houses the Holy of Holies, which John will measure, isn't going to measure anything else built beyond that. And that'll be part of the Antichrist strategy to bring peace to the Middle East, although it will be temporary. Today, committed Jews are involved in organizations such as the Temple Institute. In fact, even as we speak, they're involved in weaving clothing for priests to wear. Jewelers and artisans are are recrafting according to the specifications given in the Old Testament, the vessels of silver and gold for that day when temple worship is to begin. You may remember reading about a year ago the hubbub when somebody tried to lay the cornerstone for the naos. You talk about World War III. It'll happen until this day, probably uh, with the revelation or at least the belief that in fact the naos isn't where the Dome of the Rock is currently located. Right now, ladies and gentlemen, men are being trained in Levitical rituals according to the Old Testament systems of sacrifice and worship. It's interesting to me to think that we're living in a generation where plans and preparations for a functioning Jewish temple, although temporary, albeit not you know, the temple that we would consider the temple, of, of course, of the millennial kingdom. But here they are preparing and planning, awaiting, as it were, the world's permission, the world's permission to build. And we know from Scripture that that permission will be given to them by an amazing peacemaker, the Antichrist, who will make it happen. Now, when John sees in Revelation 11 this temple sanctuary and he measures it, 
By this time, it has already been desecrated by the Antichrist. It's a place where Jews are gathering, no doubt, but it is without the potential of, of genuine and true sacrifice, certainly because it has been desecrated by the Antichrist in his fit of rage and, and jealousy. And so in this latter three and a half year period, God stations two rather unusual witnesses. And these witnesses are going to testify to the gospel of God, the Antichrist's coming doom, and the doom of the world that dares to follow this false Messiah. So with that as an introduction, let's look at verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, or literally three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, this same symbolic terminology appears in Zechariah 4, where olive trees are dipping their oil as if there's a continual flow into a lampstand as a witness to Israel in Zechariah's day. Oil is a consistent reference in the Bible to the Spirit of God, and since the oil here is directly connected to the lampstands, in Zechariah and in Revelation, the testimony of the witnesses have great spirit power and it will not go out until their time is up. In fact, it is the often quoted text in Zechariah related to this particular image we're given here in Revelation that refers to spirit-empowered witnessing and being a testimony, of course, in our day to what we know as the gospel of of Jesus Christ. And this is the text that's often quoted. It's related to this context. Not by might, nor by power, but by my what? Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts, Zechariah 4, 6. Never will that be more clearly applied than in the lives of these two indestructible witnesses empowered uniquely by God's spirit. So who are they? We don't know. There's not a verse that tells us, which gives us good reason to spend a lot of time guessing, right? Well, really, we can put together some clues to come up with these two men, and I believe personally that they are Elijah and Moses simply because of what God will have them do. Some believe it might be Elijah and Enoch because those two men never died, although we know from Scripture that many people who never die enter the eternal state, coming from the tribulation into the kingdom and from the kingdom into the eternal state. I think they're Elijah and Moses. Like Moses, as we'll see, they have the power to turn water into blood. God gives them this power to touch the earth with plagues. Like Elijah, they have the ability to to call down fire, as it were. In fact, here it's literally coming from their mouths, and that sounds a lot like Elijah. You may remember back in in the Kings and Chronicles where uh, that delegation came from a rebellious king. They found Elijah sitting up on a hill, and the delegation of soldiers came up to him, and the leader said, "Uh, the king wants to see you, you oh, godly man. And Elijah says, well, if I'm a godly man, let fire come down and incinerate you. And fire comes down and incinerates them. So the king sends another delegation. The second delegation comes. The leader goes up the hill and he says, Elijah, a man of God, the king wants to see you. Come now. And Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and incinerate you. And they're incinerated. A third delegation comes. By now you're thinking, how slow is this king? A third delegation comes and that leader crawls up the hill and says, oh, Elijah, man of God, I know it's happened before. Please don't do it to me. God tells Elijah to go with him. Well, here you have these witnesses. In fact, look at verse 5 of the description. If anyone wants to harm them, fire 
flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. How's that for a witnessing technique? If anyone wants to harm them, he will be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying, which we're told was literally three and a half years. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Now you can only imagine how they will be hated by the world, by the Antichrist. Yet these two witnesses are indestructible. They're fearless at this point in time, supernaturally testifying to the truth of God's word and the coming of of the Messiah. And by the way, again, all of the focus, like a laser beam, is, 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 is on Jerusalem, is on the people of God as it, as it focuses its laser beam. That's why some who um, are millennialists and post-tribulationists just understand the Jewishness of this book. And, and apart from that, it's very difficult to understand. But as we understand the focus is on Israel, redeeming it, calling back the Jews to God. This makes a lot of sense about this temple. It makes a lot of sense about the Jewish evangelists. It makes a lot of sense about these Old Testament prophet-like witnesses who have incredible power. Uh, those post-tribulationalists and historic premillennialists who believe the church is going to go through the tribulation have a great deal of trouble with chapter 11. In fact, some of them that I read said this is so perplexing to us because why? They can't get the church in here. It's hard to, to somehow wedge the church into the events of chapter 11. But a non-dispensational, non-literal attempt to understand and expound Revelation, it gets stumped here. Why? You can't get the church in here. And I believe it's very simple. The church is gone. The promise of Revelation 3 to the churches, they've been taken away from the hour of wrath or tribulation. The, the letters to the Thessalonians, you're going to go up and then this is going to happen, I believe has already, already happened. And so you have a literal temple that's measured with literal Jewish worshipers, marked out as God's statement of possession. The Gentiles are excluded, which poses a great problem in this vision because the church would include Gentiles and Jews. Furthermore, you have a literal temple mount still in existence, a literal Jewish remnant, a literal altar, a reference to prophetic olive trees and lampstands, and a literal text from Zechariah that's now applied. Furthermore, you have witnesses standing outside a temple in the literal city of Jerusalem calling Israel back to God. If the church is somehow represented here, what is meant by Jerusalem? One author said, well, it's any city. It's every city. No, it's clearly Jerusalem. And if the two witnesses, post-tribulationalists and historic premillennials believe, symbolize the ministry of the church during the tribulation or at any time in church history, well, what are, what's the church doing killing people with fire out of their mouths because they won't believe and they try to come against them? The church isn't called to kill people. The church is called to be killed. The church is not called to make people suffer. The church is called to suffer. And then if the witnesses are to be killed, as we'll see in a moment, and taken up to heaven just as a symbol of the church, does that mean that all true Christians are going to be martyred? Are they going to just lie in the street as we'll see? Then to be resurrected and taken up only after having killed thousands of people who tried to come against them. No, just take this text at face value as you can the entire book of Revelation. You don't have to perform any set of gymnastics if the church is already raptured and the Jewish temple, which is temporary, is being measured out as God's special property. But there's another sidebar to the Jewishness of this scene and the fulfillment of these witnesses. 
It's the coming of this one that we believe is Elijah. Think about it. That would make a lot of sense to Jews, not much sense to those of us. For centuries now, the the Orthodox Jews celebrate Passover in their homes, and they always put out an extra plate and an extra chair for whom? Elijah. I had a Jewish gal who'd come to faith in Christ, and she says, I well remember this. Every time we celebrated as a family, little kids would be sent to the door, and we'd open the door and say, Elijah, are you there? And if Elijah's there, he can come in and sit out at the seat they have prepared and eat the meal with them. Well, why do they do that? Because they're literally believing in a literal fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy that Elijah will come preceding the return of their Messiah. Now, some would say, well, John the Baptist fulfilled that. No, unless John the Baptist didn't know because John the Baptist was asked in John one twenty one, are you Elijah? And he said, no, I'm not. He came in the spirit of Elijah, but he wasn't Elijah. He came preparing the way for the first advent of the Messiah. There will be Elijah who will come prior to the second advent when the Messiah will come back and call Israel to himself and we, the bride, will come with him. Now, back to our text where you discover the Antichrist is allowed to move by God against these two witnesses, and God allows them to be put to death. Would you notice, though, it's only after they have finished their God-ordained, God-determined time of ministry, which is three and a half years. Verse 7. When they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them, overcome them, and kill them. In other words, the demonically empowered Antichrist, the beast, and we'll look at him later in future studies, will be allowed to kill these two witnesses. Look at verse 8. And their dead bodies, these are literal bodies that are literally dead, will lie in a literal street of the great city. Which city is this? Well, it's mystically called Sodom and Egypt, where also... The Lord was crucified. So we know it's Jerusalem. But here it says that they've received a couple of nicknames. They're called Sodom, more than likely because of their sexual immorality. And, they're called, and it's called Egypt, more than likely because of its oppression of God's people. Now notice verse 9. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations, that is everybody on the planet, will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days And will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. Now the greatest insult, friends, that you could do to a deceased is to withhold burial. To leave them in the open wherever they've fallen, wherever they have been killed. Leave them to openly decay. And this text here says that the world is going to watch them lying on the street there in Jerusalem for three and a half days as their bodies decomposed. In fact, the present active participle, we're beholding them, means the world is going to continually watch. They're they're so intrigued. In fact, they're going to rejoice, as we'll see in a minute. But skeptics have long scoffed. In fact, go back about 20 years and all the way back, uh, have have scoffed at this prophecy. There's no way that that could literally be true, which means everything else is not literally true. But that was before satellites and the internet in our lifetime, which would allow messages and, and uh, 
pictures to be transmitted. You can imagine cameras posted from every news organization on the planet and the images of this scene being transmitted from Jerusalem to Tokyo to New York to Beijing to South Africa to Paris, uh, literally around the world. And what happens when the world sees these two men that they've come to hate because of the drought they brought on, because of the plagues they brought, because of their testimony of, against the Antichrist and the coming doom of the world, they are going to do what? Look at the text. They're going to start rejoicing. Verse 10. And those who dwell on the earth, a phrase again for earth dwellers, unbelievers, will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell upon the earth. I mean, this is the Antichrist's anti-Christmas. The party, the celebration... It's like nothing before. It literally will galvanize the human race into one giant celebration. They're going to send cards to each other. They're going to send presents to each other. They're going to celebrate. Look, can you believe it? Our leader has killed those two pests. Those two witnesses. They're finally dead. Let's celebrate. This is what one author called effectively the world's Final Mardi Gras. It reveals the depth of unbelief and perversion and immorality and the confirmed hatred of the gospel and the glory of God and his witness on earth. But the party doesn't last very long, does it? As the cameras are trained on these two corpses lying out in the open on the city street, and the world continually watches as they celebrate. It's on every screen, everywhere on the planet. Suddenly, pallid skin turns rosy. A finger twitches. A leg straightens out. The partying stops. People press forward toward the screens. Their packages, little packages, fall to the ground, and they watch as legs are straightened and then they see the witnesses perhaps blink and the lights of the camera sit up and stand up alive. That's the way to end the party. <laughs> and it ends. In fact, a voice, verse 12, booms out. Come up here, then they went up into heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them go. I'll bet they did. As cameras zoomed in as long as they could. This isn't a picture, by the way, of the rapture of the church. The rapture, 1 Corinthians 15 says, takes place in the twinkling of an eye. You just disappear. This is more like the ascension of Christ where the whole world will watch them as they ascend all the way up through the sky as far as they can see and then they disappear. And then God acts. The next verse tells us that he sends an earthquake and 7,000 people are killed. The Greek text for 7,000 people literally means the names of men. That's, a, that's an idiom or an expression for important people. More than likely, these are important people in the cabinet and coalition of the Antichrist who die. In that earthquake. The text also tells us in verse 13 that the rest were terrified and gave 
glory to the God of heaven. By the way, this is the only reference to repentance following any disaster into tribulation, more than likely from the thousands of Jews who've been pouring into Jerusalem, who've come to see the witnesses, those who are worshiping in that temporary naos, gathered around it perhaps, who see those witnesses come back to life and they say, we've seen enough. The Greek language, I would agree with those who say it's very clear that this is an expression of true, genuine repentance and belief. Now, most of the world will still reject the testimony of these witnesses, but some will believe. Now, there are some core principles from the testimony of these witnesses that can be applied in our own lives in this dispensation prior to the rapture of the church right now. That is apart from the fire-breathing part, which would be really interesting. Besides that, what can we learn and what can we apply? Well, first of all, simply this. If you're a believer, stand up for Christ. No matter how rejected, no matter how ignored you may be, no matter how the world may party on in spite of your voice, the party's temporary. It will be for those friends you have even now. It's true for them in Revelation 11. It's true for us today. Secondly, make Christ known in your world. Just just make it known. You bear the truth. You have the answer. You have the only hope for a world that's desperately trying to drown out their sorrow and fear with a party. Uh, So they move from one noisy thing to the next. Even now they're attempting to silence the pounding of their hearts in fear over the future of the world. Third, like these two witnesses... Remember, the issue is not the response of the world. The issue is our obedience to the word of God. We testify of him whom we believe in because he has accepted us. He's called us out of darkness into a marvelous light. And we testify even if the world ignores us. Frankly, I believe that every Christian who stands for Christ, every Christian who is involved in some way in making Christ known in the world, every Christian who is willing to be obedient, there is no telling, there is just no telling now the impact of your testimony. But let me encourage you. You have no idea who's watching you, but more are watching you than you know. There's no way to tally it up. Listen, the harvest doesn't end at the end of the service. The harvest ends at the end of the age. So stay faithful to the Lord. A gentleman in our church sent me a clip of a sermon preached. It's gone around. Perhaps some of you have seen it or heard of it. It's not captioned, but I recognize the voice of Stephen Olford that I believe in this YouTube video is actually delivering this fascinating story, true story of a witness for Christ. And I've tried to edit this thing down as much as I can. It's a long illustration, and I've got to read all of it, or you won't get the point. But a wonderful, I believe, encouraging and convicting testimony of one man who was faithful in being a witness for Christ. The story began at Crystal Palace Baptist Church in southern London, where a man was visiting, and he asked if he could come and be a part of the service, and they were having a testimony meeting. At the end, he said, could I share with you mine? And of course they said yes. And the man said, I've just moved into this area from Sydney, Australia. And just a few months ago, I visited some relatives in Sydney and I was walking down George Street, busy thoroughfare, 
shopping district. And as I passed one shop, a little white-haired man stepped out in front of me, handed me a track, and asked me, are you saved? And if you died today, would you go to heaven? The man said, I walked away but was dumbfounded. Nobody had ever asked me that question before. And on the flight all the way back to Heathrow in London, I was puzzled as I read that little track. I called a friend who was a Christian, and he told me how to accept Christ. And I just wanted to share with you, friends, that I'm now a Christian. Of course, the church was excited to hear this testimony of a man who would become a part of their church. That pastor of that church flew to Australia for a three-day series in Adele, Australia. During that series of meetings, a woman came to him for some counseling, and he, of course, wanted to know where she stood with Christ. And, and, and she said, well, I used to live in Sydney, and a couple of months ago I was doing some shopping on George Street, and after, I, after uh, doing some shopping, I, I bumped into a, a, a little white-haired man who gave me a track and asked me if I would go to heaven if I died, and I took the track and walked away. But I visited this church where you're speaking today, knowing they believed the gospel that sounded familiar in that track, and I came and asked the pastor about it, and he led me to Christ. So twice in a few days, this pastor had encountered someone impacted by this little white-haired man on George Street. A few weeks later, this pastor flew to Perth on the coast of Australia where he preached for an evangelical church there in Perth. After one of the services, the leading elder of the church took him out for dinner. While they were eating, this pastor asked his fellow elder, where he'd come to faith in Christ. And the lay elder said, well, I grew up in this church until the age of 15, never made a commitment, left, came back, and still not committed to Christ, but I grew up to a place of influence here in this church. I was in Sydney three years ago on business when a little white-haired man accosted me with a track and asked me if I was saved and on my way to heaven. I tried to tell him that I was a Baptist elder in a Baptist church, and this little man didn't care. I was so angry that when I arrived back in Perth, I told our pastor what had happened. And my pastor said to me, you know, frankly, for years I've wondered if you were ever truly born again. My pastor led me to genuine faith in Christ. This pastor then flew back, same pastor we're talking about, here's all these stories, flew back to the UK, was speaking in the Lake District at a Christian conference, and he was so excited about these three people and these three stories that he told those testimonies to his audience. And after the meeting, three pastors, unknown to one another in this regard, came up after the meeting and said they had all come to faith in Christ around 30 to 35 years ago, respectively, after receiving from this same man on George Street a simple gospel tract they'd walked away from him but later came to faith in Christ. This pastor was absolutely astounding. Sometime later, this pastor flew to a a Keswick convention in the Caribbean to a group of missionaries that had gathered. He was so excited about the fruit of this little man's testimony that he shared it with his audience. And at the close of his teaching session, several missionaries came up and said they had been saved 15 to 20 years ago, respectively, through the initial testimony of a little man on George Street passing out tracts. At the end of that meeting, this pastor flew back by way of Georgia in the United States to speak at a naval chaplain's convention. After three days of revving up a thousand chaplains about being a witness for Christ, at the end of the conference, the chaplain general took, me, took this pastor out to dinner and he asked uh, the chaplain general, how did you come to faith in Christ? The chaplain general said, well, it really was miraculous. I was in the Navy and living a terribly immoral, profligate life. We were doing exercises in the South Pacific, and we ended up on a brief leave in Sydney. I partied downtown Sydney that night, got on the wrong bus, and it took me to George Street. As I got off the bus, an elderly, white-haired man suddenly appeared. I thought it was a ghost. Asked me, sailor, are you saved? And if you died, do you know you'd go to heaven? That confrontation shocked me so much when I got back to my battleship, I sought out my chaplain and he led me to Christ. I soon began to prepare for the ministry under my chaplain's guidance and now here I am in charge of leading a thousand chaplains to share Christ with others. I'm not done. 
Okay? Just take a breath. That same pastor, six months later, flew to India. By the way, I would not want this pastor's schedule. Okay? I want you to know that. He flew to India to a convention for 5,000 missionaries in an eastern section of India. At the close of the meeting, the Indian leader, humble Indian missionary, took him home for a meal. The pastor asked him, how did you, a Hindu, come to faith in Christ? The missionary pastor responded, I was in a very privileged position working for the Indian diplomatic mission, traveling the world. One of my diplomatic trips took me to Sydney, and one night I was doing some last-minute shopping on George Street. I was loaded down with packages, but a courteous man stepped in front of me and asked me, do you know if you died today, would you go to heaven? And he handed me a track. I thanked him, but that disturbed me. When I got home to India, I sought out my Hindu priest who didn't have an answer to what was suggested in the track, but he told me I ought to take my question to a local mission station nearby. Interesting, a Hindu priest would tell him to do that. I did, and that missionary led me to faith in Christ. I left Hinduism and began to prepare for the ministry, and now I'm leading thousands of missionaries, and we're winning thousands of Hindus to faith in Christ. Eight months later, this pastor of the Crystal Palace Baptist Church had meetings in Sydney, okay? He asked the pastor there, do you know a little man who hands out tracts on George Street? The pastor said, sure I do. He's done that for years. His name is Mr. Genor, but I don't believe he does it anymore because he's now very old and very frail. The visiting pastor said, I've got to meet him. His colleague said, not a problem. I know where he lives. Two nights later, they went to this little apartment and knocked on the door and a tiny, frail little man with a head of white hair answered the door. He invited them in, sat them down, and made them some tea, serving them even though his hands trembled with age. As they sat together, this London pastor told Mr. Genor all the encounters he had had over the past three years, and all the Christians he'd met, from England to Australia to India to America, who'd come to faith in Christ because of his gospel witness on George Street. This little man sat there with tears that began to run down his cheeks, He said, well, my story is very simple. I I was in the Navy and I made a commitment that I would attempt, once I got saved, to share Christ with someone every day, perhaps as many as 10 a day if I could. Sometimes I couldn't do it. I was sick or whatever. I wasn't paranoid about it. It was just my desire. Then when I retired from the military, I decided that I would devote my life to witnessing. And for the past several decades, I've been in one place. I believe that the busiest and best place in all of Sydney to pass out tracks was George Street. And now, for 40 years, I've passed out tracks on that busy avenue. I've had a lot of rejections, but many people have been courteous and they've accepted my gospel literature. However, I must tell you, he said with tears now coursing down his cheeks, that until today, I knew of not one person who had accepted Christ from my witness all these years. This pastor, with some help, eventually did a rough count as best as they could determine and came to the conclusion that at least 146,000 people had been influenced to faith in Christ because of this man's consistent, unfruitful to him testimony. And that was only the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. Mr. Gennard died two weeks after these pastors visited him. Imagine only a few Baptists in southern Sydney even knew about Mr. Genor, but heaven knew about him. And I can't imagine the fanfare when he arrived home. 
Dear Flock, I don't know about you, but that testimony so convicts me. It, it deeply challenges me. And it encourages me regarding my own witness. What about yours? The old spiritual asks the question, who will be a witness for my Lord? I pray that this week, like never before, in fact, for the rest of our lives, we will answer the question and say, here am I. I'll be a witness for my Lord. Father, we're thankful for the fearless, courageous testimony of these that we have already observed standing for you in the tribulation period who've come to faith in you who will die because of it. Frankly, Lord, we thank you that as we look back over our shoulders, we see history of people upon whose shoulders we stand who have been faithful witnesses. And then we can easily get the idea, Lord, that a faithful witness is a, is, a, is a witness that sees the fruit. A faithful witness is one who just has people saying, you know, what must I do to be saved? They respond to the tracts. They respond to the gospel. And so I thank you for the testimony at the end of our study of this man who for 40 years never saw anyone come to faith. But he didn't do it for that. He did it because he was compelled, as we have been told, those of us who have been called out of darkness into a marvelous light to show forth the praises of you who have so called us. That we were once not a people, but now we are the people of God. We once had not received mercy, but now we've received the mercy of God. We have the answer. So in our little families, in our little worlds, in ways that you intersect with us, May we be a witness. So dedicating our lives, and with that we mean our lips, our voices, our tongues, to sharing with our world of the truth of Christ, we pray. You have given us the Spirit of God. We are empowered. We must be surrendered. So with fresh commitment, we want to do that today, Father. Father. 